Hello, my friends. Welcome back. My guest today is Ashley Mears, and she is a sociologist who has recently done an assessment of the VIP clubbing world. Basically, she did what's technically referred to as immersive ethnographic research, but in reality, that meant she became a party girl for six months and followed some of the biggest promoters around New York, Miami, and elsewhere, assessing what's going on. Given that I've been a club promoter for 14 years, looking at the anthropological underpinnings, like the the psychological, sociological reasons for why people enjoy going to nightclubs, I I loved every minute of this. It was so fun. Uh, So expect to learn why men spend thousands on bottles of champagne in VIP clubs, why the music is so loud, why there is a very specific look of the girls that are joining the guys on these tables, the anthropological underpinnings of nightclubs in general, and much more. Awesome, awesome episode. Ashley is uh, is so much fun. Uh, I'm certain I'll be getting her back on to talk about, I don't know. So I'll find an excuse to bring her back. She's great. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But for now it's time for the wise and wonderful Ashley Mears. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Ashley Mears. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Great to have you here. Tell me your background. Tell everyone that's listening what your the 30,000 foot view of who you are. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm a sociologist. I, 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 teach in, I teach courses in pop culture and economic sociology and gender. Um, and my research kind of broadly is in what we could call cultural economics, but um, basically the cultural foundations of um, value um, and how that plays out in different markets. And I've focused on pretty atypical cases for social scientists, and that is um, the fashion modeling industry, which was my dissertation and became a book later called Pricing Beauty. And then my most recent book is about um, high-end nightclubs and the uh, the fact of champagne waste. <laughs> so <laughs> I know I describe it in fairly bland terms, somewhat deliberately, because as an academic, you know, there's an impetus to kind of be serious and present your stuff in kind of theoretically and conceptually recognizable terms. Uh, but yeah, I, I study in this kind of fun worlds. <laughs> I listened to your episode on Conversations with Tyler. 
Yeah. yeah um, uh, talk, talking about this stuff and hearing two academic, you, you remained mostly academic, but he is pure. Like he was asking a question of like, why is the music so, why does the music have to be so loud <laughs> in nightclubs? Which is just like, just the p- most pure academic question. And he's like, well, actually, that's fairly good. So I want to, I want to try and take a, an academic's perspective, a sociological, anthropological perspective of nightclubs and nightlife how do you how would you lay it out imagine i'm another academic i've never been in a nightclub i don't know why people (laughs) go i don't know what the purpose is give it give us the full monty well that that would make you like a lot of academics actually (laughs) so um so yeah well first there's there's a lot of different types of nightclubs there's clubs out there that cater to pretty much any kind of you know niche and and attraction and like kink or whatever but the clubs that i studied are um they offer what's called bottle service where instead of waiting at the bar to get your drink you can um pay a pretty high price you know starting at five hundred dollars on up to five thousand or more uh, to sit at a table and basically rent the table for the night and then bottles of alcohol get brought to your table and then people use this as an opportunity to show off how much money they can spend on champagne because the big expensive bottles come out with sparklers or they you know are brought to the table by very attractive uh, young women that are called bottle girls um, so it's a clear case of conspicuous consumption. It affords an opportunity to show off in this kind of club world. But if you're just, you know, wanting to hit the like, I don't know, the 80s dance party, you know, that, that is used to be up the street from my house, you know, what people seek out in, in all kinds of uh, nightlife experiences is the, the opportunity to um, kind of lose oneself in the moment, in the music. And this explains why the music is so loud, because it, you know, you, you're no longer distracted as much by the fact of other, other people um, and that kind of co-presence and like mutual focus on something like, you know, loud music or if everybody knows the words to a song, right? I mean, this, this is a pretty, this can be a really magical experience that clubs offer. It's, um, you call that it's what the co- collective effervescence. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a you know old theoretical term for it by the French theorist Emil Durkheim that um, refers to this as collective effervescence. The the kind of losing yourself in the moment with other people. It's kind of the defining logic of nightclubs of Burning Man. You can feel it at protests. You can feel it at the you know football game when people are chanting together. It's that excitement of of being with other people. Okay, that's why the music's so loud. That's, why, <laughs> that's right. That's why the music's so loud. Why are people spending money getting bottles to their table? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different explanations for this. The one that, that I focused on um, is looking at the extreme sums of money that people were paying, which really was kind of bizarre and you know, struck this curiosity in me that, um, so I started this project, it was around 2011 and, um, you know, bottle service was at its peak and I was reading reports of people that were spending, you know, thousands of dollars, um, oligarchs, you know, outbidding each other, seeing who could spend more on champagne that they wouldn't even drink. Maybe they would just gift the bottles to people in the room. And, you know, 2011 is a moment where there's a kind of global financial austerity because the world is still reeling from the financial meltdown of 2008. And so I just thought that, you know, the disjuncture there (laughs) was just so fascinating that I wanted to understand um, how people could engage. In, in that kind of ostentatious behavior. So the the explanations that I put forward are really anthropological, that um, 
you know, on the on the one hand, this is fairly this is kind of a timeless behavior, the um, showing off of status through the through waste. Um, and there's a, a term that anthropologists use for this that um, was documented in studies of uh, tribal societies in the Pacific Northwest, where um, tribal nobility would gather together, you know, the tribe and and uh, compete with one another to see who could give away the most, you know, valuable things, who could hold the biggest feast, who could waste the most food. Um, that's called a potlatch, and that would have real consequences for somebody's claim to status and prestige, and that you know they can solidify rank in that way. So it was really consequential. Uh, nightclubs are not that consequential. <laughs> this kind of, you know, popping bottles in a nightclub, um, but it is, it is, you know, one of many forms that we see throughout history of people asserting their status through waste through the display of waste. Um, and so that's one explanation uh, that I find quite fascinating. And then, it, you know, there's a bunch of other um, plausible explanations. Some people go to clubs and spend in these sums of money because they want to be in the milieu of people like themselves, it, which could lead to business opportunities. So especially for people who work in finance, this might be an opportunity to meet or to, or to entertain clients, which could be written off as a business expense. Um, you know, so there's peacocking, there's the, the kind of practical um, uh, connectivity in a business world. Um, and, you know, the, I think that for some people, this this kind of um, participation in this world really is um, kind of a, the, the pinnacle of, of achieving something that is quite meaningful in pop culture broadly, right? Because you get to be in these glamorous settings surrounded by fashion models um, where your behavior is essentially immortalized in hip hop lyrics that are celebrated around the world and you get to perform that. And so that's what clubs are offering. <laughs> I, I, I get it. Why, why are the girls on the tables? Why are they there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the girls that, um, that, I, that I studied uh, in this circuit they, they tend to be young women who are um, very beautiful in the way that the fashion modeling industry defines beauty of typically very young, very thin, predominantly, but not exclusively white, uh, with a kind of rarefied beauty that people would recognize as a fashion model. Uh, and so that kind of beauty communicates status um, because it's rare, because it's been legitimated by the fashion modeling industry, even if the men who are spending money might not be attracted to that kind of body. Those are the kinds of women um, who are, are kind of displayed in the room as a means of communicating and elevating the status of not just the room and the place, but all of the people in that space as well. So that it's a, a certain kind of entourage. So this kind of spending wouldn't be possible without that kind of entourage. Why? It would be considered meaningless. It would be um, nobody Nobody would kind of see the, uh, the expense of the bottle as being... Um, as being worth it if the crowd were not deemed high status enough as worthy to impress, which fashion models are. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and most of the guys that are on these tables, they're not planning on dating the girls, really. They're not sort of long-term uh, prospects, despite the fact that they're quite beautiful. Why do you think that is? Um, yeah, so that's my, that is something that's a, a bit of a, a puzzle that I found, but it, it kind of depends what you mean by dating, because that has a different time horizon for different people. So, okay, uh, long, long-term <laughs> prospects, should I say, long-term right. relationship, marriage, right, right. family. Uh, yeah, well, it's definitely the case that there are a lot of hookups that happen and probably short-term relationships that form out of nightclubs. Um, some of them in and, the nightclubs. Some of them in the nightclubs, <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, but among the, among the people that are, um, 
that have money, that have professional careers, that are kind of showing off in these spaces, uh, that pool of upper class men uh, tends to partner with a similar pool of upper class women. Um, there's, a, there's a certain homophily, you know, of like um, birds of a feather flock together kind of logic, where if you look at um, marriage patterns, people tend to partner with people like themselves in terms of their education credentials or their family background or their occupational prestige and earnings. Um, and the perception among the clients who are the bottle buyers um, in these spaces is that models are great company to have for the night, uh, but not for the long term. That they Actually, it was quite surprising how I mean, the value that models generate to the nightclub industry, it's almost like they're priceless, right? They, they communicate status. People will spend more money with models in the room. Promoters can make their careers off of models. Um, they're, they're creating so much profit. And yet as people, um, models are really seen as worthless. <laughs> they're seen as like airheaded, <laughs> not serious, right? A woman that goes out frequently in these spaces, doesn't buy her own drinks, can't afford maybe to buy her own drinks, must be some kind of failure in life. Not the kind of woman you would take home to meet mom. Okay. Um, where are the affluent, young, high status women? This is a really good question. Do you know? No. <laughs> Do you know where they are? No. No, no actually, but if you could... Get me their phone numbers uh, in, in an Excel spreadsheet and send them over to me uh, as an aspiring trophy husband. That would be wonderful. So I want to do a project on, um, I mean, you, you call it trophy husband, you know, trophy wives. Is it, all, all these are variations of economically asymmetrical relationships. I'm really fascinated where, um, where you have such imbalances of power. I mean, the trophy unions, um, sugar babies, sugar daddies, groupies, there's all kinds of different versions of this. And I think that those relationships could really reveal important lessons for everybody else about um, how, how, people, how people manage power inequalities in their relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but Flipping, I'm not, that, I'm flipping that power dynamic on its head is an interesting one. Yeah. Very, very yeah, interesting. It, so where, like where are they? Where are the, where's the, where's the, 25 year old with a, a, a 25 year old female with a seven figure net worth where's she um well because of the way that um gender tends to operate in professional realms um there is there is still a pretty big uh wage gap in the professions and actually across the labor market um there's you know those kinds of fields in which you see people who are very young turning out lots of money they tend to be male dominated fields you know, so like in tech, for instance, um, or some sectors of finance. So yeah, twenty-five is a little bit young for anybody, but I think especially for women to have okay. seven oh, years. Oh, the 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 <laughs> the young enough to still party in PhD or Lavo brunch or whatever it might be. Yeah, so it wouldn't be the PhD set, but maybe you you could try your luck with like the influencers. <laughs> yeah. I meant I meant PhD the nightclub in New York, not PhD oh, right. the right. sorry. <laughs> so this is where my they should thought. rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, but no, actually, the, just thinking about where the areas are in which women do really well at young ages. I mean, I, I am thinking about like the Instagram influencers. Those are where you see um, kind of really powerful, like up and coming business people, business women, I think, kind of starting their companies and building brands. Why are they not, in the, why are they not buying a bottle? Big, big table, getting guys... <laughs> Making them, making them go and eat like the second-rate sushi downstairs before they come up. Why is that not happening? <laughs> they should. Yeah. So, um, so 
it's a realm in which it's kind of built on the assumption of men as consumers and it's built on the assumption of heterosexual uh, male taste and the male gaze. And so, you know, women are kind of brought in as the decor um, and it's the assumption that men are the spenders. It's not that there's never any women spenders. There certainly are, but they're pretty rare and they're talked about as like, did you see that? That was weird, <laughs> right? What's like, a female whale? Uh, there's a couple, yeah. So Way I less. A couple of them, a whaleless. Yeah, I guess they would just be called whales. <laughs> but that's, Obviously. you know, to be called a whale as a guy in a nightclub is a... A badge right. of honor to be called a whale in a nightclub is there's, there's little worse. That's right. Yeah, there's it's not so flattering, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for women in the clubs, like for women to get into the club, the most important thing that they have is not not money but beauty. And so there are you know lots of instances where women who were working in high powered positions in finance, for instance, would want to go out after work, after work with their team to one of these places and might get rejected at the door or might end up in some really awkward negotiation. She can't come in because she's only five foot five, right? <laughs> and like, I mean, how humiliating, right? And so, um, so this, yeah, it's, I mean, perhaps if a woman had, you know, so much money or so much celebrity, I mean, that could, that could trump, um, the body size, but, but really, um, to get in, women have to have this, what we might call bodily capital, whereas men can have money to get in, they could have connections, they could have celebrity. Um, and as in the end, as long as they're good looking and friendly, they could still get in as filler to like buy their drinks at the bar. Um, but, you know, it, but some, some women could actually get denied entry and could get really insulted like to her face. Mm. So it's not just denied entry, it's like denied entry cruelly. Yeah, well, I mean, Many men will be denied entry at the door if you turn up as a group of guys and you're yeah. not spending a huge amount of money. If you turn up without girls, you're not getting That's right. in. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's limits um, for the men as well, just based on this gender. So there's a there's an amount of capital that you need, yeah. and that capital appears to be selecting asymmetrically between men and women, and there are certain pathways that are completely being deselected for and that is determined highly by the sort of environment that you're going to go in um someone's academic uh accomplishments their um ability to uh elucidate their ideas uh, how articulate they are um their ability to be a good cook unless that's been monetized <laughs> um because you have loud music drunk people very visceral, um, sort of skin deep by, by, by like by definition, um, experience going on. None of those qualities are given chance to manifest. Therefore, they're not valued at the door. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music is loud, and you know the lights are low, and so it would really matters. It's not your sterling personality, um, unless of course it has been monetized in some kind of celebrity. But you know, there's, I don't know. I, I do think that your point about selection is is accurate. That you know these kinds of places attract people that probably are already um, are already on the side of like getting in, right? And and some people um, who maybe know about these places would know that they wouldn't be welcome, and that in itself would be reason not to even try. No one wants to be turned away at the door, right? Like it's the it's the the thing of social nightmares. Um, that being said, Berghain, which you may be familiar with in Germany, the techno club, yeah. um, is famous for having a doorman who turns people away for no reason. 
Um, yeah. And that's got nothing to do with how much money you have. That's like, right. have you seen there's an app available which <laughs> teaches you how to get into Burkhain? I read about it. Yeah, I didn't see it because I'm one of those people that would never try. Yeah, yeah. I'm, like, I'm too horrified at the possibility that I could wait in line for an hour and then not get in. No, drive, drive into the middle of nowhere, go to somewhere that looks like something out of 28 days later and then <laughs> yeah, wait in the Did freezing... You- no, I've so never, I've, I've never been. I've got a couple of buddies. I've been, I've got a few buddies that have been. If you're listening and you've been to Burkheim, tell us whether you got in, how you got in. If you know anyone that got knocked back by that, that crazy scary guy on the door that's got like 45 <laughs> piercings and face tattoos and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's like, uh, you have to go in groups of three. Two people must be wearing black. It's advisable to have something on you that's leather. <laughs> like, you know, all of this. And you should always know the, who the DJs are. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, just claim that Solomon's DJing. That's like, the, that's the best thing to do. Just signal with the fact that you think it's probably Solomon. And then it's like, is it not Solomon? Oh, I swear it was, so- I bet he was supposed to be playing. Oh, this guy knows what he's on about. That's right. That's right. I, bl- I, I bloody do. I went to uni with, uh, Jamie Jones's younger sister, Jenny Jones, actually, who's uh-huh. a cool girl. Um, okay. So you've, you've just redictated to me an industry I've worked in for a decade and a half. Like I've run nightclubs for 14 years. I've watched more drunk people than I can remember stumble in and out. Um, and yeah, it only, it took me until a couple of years ago to realize what the experience was selecting for, like why at its very, very core people were going and that collective effervescence, it, it really seems to be one of the driving factors of that. It's a place where other people like you are. Yeah. So it's selecting already for a particular social group, yeah. which is like where you get um, the UK type of promotion that we do is less bottle service and um, tables. It's lower value, higher volume. So mm-hmm. we'll do 2,000, 1,000 to 2,000 to 2,500 kids a night, four nights a week, but it'll be just buy drinks at the bar. Tables are just free basically for birthdays um, and we try and do high volume. Um, but mm-hmm. again, with that, that's even more so about that community side, right? So it's yeah. the same people will go. It's the same night every week um, with yeah. the same drink stills, the same sort of DJs. Sometimes we even play the same songs at the same time. Um, uh, so they know the rhythm is predictable. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. But um, what else? What else did you learn? Tell us about the tell us about the the party girls and about what what your uh, learnings were. Spending a bit of time with them because you went. You got in the trenches for this. <laughs> this wasn't an armchair philosophy job. This was you. You went in the trenches, donned your high heels, and, and cracked on, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And some of my some of my colleagues in academia, they would kind of joke about it, like, "Oh, Ashley, you know, such hard field work you have, you know, in Miami at these nightclubs, <laughs> you know, with all this champagne." I was like, it was awful. There were some <laughs> moments, particularly in Miami, because I was following this promoter who was like a real party animal. I mean, he would chase the after parties until like eight, ten o'clock in the morning. And uh, I remember, yeah, at one point I was like, there's some, you know, beautiful space surrounded by beautiful people and all of this, you know, symbols of money coming out. And I like went into the bathroom and just cried for a minute. <laughs> I couldn't take, you know, I was like, I'm in the, the dredges of humanity. <laughs> Wiped my tears, came back out. It's like partying again. <laughs> uh, but I may have been really sleep deprived at that yeah. moment too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so 
the the field work is um, is called immersive ethnography. This kind of you know sometimes we call it participant observation, but I kind of flip it. It's more like observant participation. So I really did become a girl. This was my point of access. Yeah, you know, I could have done the study in any other kind of way, just by interviews or um, you know if if I didn't look the way I did, I and was a woman, I probably would have had a harder time getting access. Um, but because of the the access that I had. Uh, so I'm, I'm was an ex model, uh, and I was doing this field work when I was about 32, which is much older than most of the other young women that are called girls. But girl is not just referring to their youth; it's also a kind of social category. It marks a woman as like the type of woman that belongs in the space is is a, a girl. Um, and so the the way that I got in was as um, I'm I'm a girl that would be known as a good civilian. Uh, which so civilian is is a, a kind of term from the military, which refers to somebody who's not really part of the action, right? Um, and then a a good civilian is somebody who's like maybe not exactly a working model, but good enough, right? Like, <laughs> oh, like when the lights are low, she's like, ex- I could, she's a, she's acceptable if she puts yeah. uh, if she sort of dances dances with her back to us for long enough, like right, right. If I can wear my okay. heels, then you know she's got the height, um, and uh, you know, and I had the the same body measurements. Um, so yeah, I got in as a good civilian and I followed the promoters um, and I would follow them uh, from the start of the night, which is, you know, kind of unfathomably late at this point in my life, but it would be dinner at 10 o'clock and then into a nightclub at midnight and then staying into a nightclub into like three or four o'clock in the morning. And sometimes I would really push it and try to stay as late as the promoters, which meant going to after parties um, or staying, you know, past closing. And yeah, this was um, this was pretty intense fieldwork, even at that age. Um, you know, I think for for me by 32, I had kind of I was kind of over these this kind of social forms of sociality. You know, I was I was a little bit. Um, I always think if I had met promoters when I was like 18, I probably would have had a much different experience with dream. them. What a dream! Yeah. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, I liked clubbing and I really liked all, all forms of dance music. And, free, and then and free things. I like free champagne. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who doesn't like free things. <laughs> that's right. Although, you know, that's also one of the kind of ideas of the book is that there's really no such thing as a free lunch. That um, the the gift always has a, a counter gift, or it, anytime you give a gift, there's this expectation of reciprocity, and that's in the anthropology of Marcel Mauss, who argued that arguably at the root of any society is the gift, it's exchange. Because if I give you something, I've put you in a relationship with me and you have to reciprocate in some way. And so I forged a tie. And so these ties are kind of the building blocks of the community. And in the nightclub world, the gifts do flow, (laughs) like for good reason. Like there's all kinds of free drinks, free dinners. The promoters are spending so much time during the day uh, giving favors to models, taking them to lunch, driving them to their castings, taking them bowling, you know, like, you know, hanging out with them, flirting with them, making them feel special, uh, building a relationship with them so that then the girls will reciprocate. And, and people do really talk about promoters as their friends, even though they know the promoters are making money off of them. And I don't think that the girls are fooled. It's not like a, you know, old school Marxist story of like false consciousness. It is a story about like the power of the gift that like, this is, this is a kind of relational, um, relational economy. It's like pieced together through relationships and there's work that goes into making those relationships and making them feel good and not exploitative, which objectively it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why do the girls not want to just get paid why don't they say just give me give me money 
Yeah, so some of them do, but that's pretty rare. Um, so when money exchanges hands, usually it's earmarked. So it'll be like, I'll come out with you, but you're going to pay my cabs, right? Like you pay my cab fare, 40 bucks. Um, so that's a case of like, it's not just cash. It's like cash for a purpose. Um, and then some of the promoters will offer um, housing in what's known as like a model house or model apartment. And so the girls will get Hang to on. live in. That's supplied by a promoter? Yes. So select or models one or fucking storm aren't putting girls up in new york city to do the day job but the promoter that they eat cheap sushi with and go for no (laughs) no so there's there's lots of different types of models um right storm uh or select they'll have a legitimate model apartment somewhere but the promoters also know where it is and the promoters are calling (laughs) it trying to get the sushi so there's those promoters. There's like th- those promoters know where those model houses are, but some promoters know that there's a lot of girls that don't have representation yet and are maybe really good civilians, but they're not good enough to get in with a legit agency yet. And so they're coming to New York, you know, through their friend networks, and the promoters know their friends, and then the promoters know that they need housing, so they'll offer them free housing in exchange for going out, say, four nights a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you. Which- if you're a girl who's listening, does this sound like absolute heaven or absolute hell? And if you would be so kind as to just tell me your age when you give me this back, because That's right. I'm fascinated at why 18-year-old you would have loved it and 32-year-old you hated it. What's When did it stop? And try, if you can, to detract the <laughs> fact that you now have a family and other bits. Like, what is it about us? That, that where you cross, is it 30 and you just like, you can't stay up after 12 o'clock without dying the next day? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a career by the time I was 28. I mean, I was in grad school in my 20s and then I started my professor job and was really focused on trying to get tenure. And so... Um, I think that once you once you have a reason to wake up early in the morning, staying up late becomes harder and harder, right? If you're if you're a bit more free and you don't have those kinds of constraints on your time, then you you probably you know it just feels a lot more appropriate to be up until the sunrise. <laughs> I think I so. It's partly that. I mean, it's a life course story. I think um, it, it's you know. It's also the fact of doing this as research meant that I was I was going out sober. And so I would hold a drink and maybe take a couple sips of a drink over the course of the night and maybe at the end of the night take a drink. But while I was there, you know, everybody else would be drunk or high and kind of feeling it. And it's you're not that much fun to be a sober mode. person. That's right. When you're in work mode, that's when you're ready to go cry in the bathroom. <laughs> 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 this is awful. Um yeah. <laughs> so the question that you had asked was why don't the why don't the girls monetize their value? What what keeps them from doing that? Um, because you've said that they're essentially the they are not the currency, but they have moved themselves. They have somehow managed to move themselves uh, vertically, integrate themselves backward up the value chain to be the thing which drives the revenue for both venue indirectly through encouraging people to buy bottles to get the girls to their tables and directly for the promoter um because i'm going to guess that he must be paid based on how many girls he brings in or and then potentially a a percentage of tables as well 
That's right. Yeah. Promoters will say that they're paid on the uh, quantity of quality that they bring. Quality meaning how many real fashion models and then quantity of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is that like, so you brought in five girls that were a six out of 10. You brought in six girls that were an eight out of 10 and one girl. Like, what, what are they doing? How does that work? Yeah, yeah. So um, when they come in through the front door, you know, the, the bouncer will do the first screening to say, like, your sixes aren't good enough. <laughs> they're, they're out, right? <laughs> um, the sixes are no good here, buddy. Right. <laughs> yeah, they might, might not use that term, those terms exactly, but they would, you know, they'll make the first t- distinction. Um, and then at the table, uh, the manager will cruise by and make sure that, you know, the enough good looking girls are there at the table. And it also will look at you know, like with the vibe to see if they're fun, if they're having, if it's good energy, if people are dancing or people look bored and if it's not adding the kind of energy that they're hoping um, that it will. And so, so yeah, there's multiple, um, I don't know, gatekeepers <laughs> on that process. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, I, I proposed it to a couple of my, friends that I I know that, you know, were fashion models or were still fashion modeling at the time and was like, why don't we just cut out these promoters and we can go to the club directly. We just organize ourselves, you know, arbitrage the market and get paid each like a hundred dollars a night. And then rather than the promoter getting paid 800, they were like, no, that sounds like too much work. (laughs) And they're not, if they go out, they don't want to go out for work. They're going out really for leisure. And it's that split that people have, you know, where like, if you, if you pay somebody, then you move into a different category that redefines your experience, not as fun or as leisure or something of your own volition, but as work, you know, which, which means that that collective effervescence gets felt in a really different way. Um, I also found that among the girls, uh, actually among everybody that I spoke to, there was an assumption that if you were getting paid as a woman to be in this space, you were much closer to this very stigmatized category of women, which is the prostitute or the sex worker, in which oh there are lots of sex workers in these spaces, but it's assumed that like the bottle girl is also for sale. So people would talk about bottle girls as being close to sex workers. And people would talk about um, fashion models who were getting paid to be at the tables as being kind of these, you know, sad paid women that, um, that had this kind of sad fate of having to that's, a get sad, paid. that's a sad paid woman but the one right. that did it for some sashimi and, and a couple <laughs> of glasses of moe she's somehow fine so it's not even moe sometimes it's just like prosecco right? it's just sparkling wine and uh it's not the sashimi it's like the cucumbers it's like the cucumber roll when you go to these dinners you get the kind of leftovers from the kitchen stop bringing bel-air to your table and claiming that it's champagne <laughs> it's not it's not it's it's prosecco with a lighty uppy logo that's right but if you're 18 it's all good so we have something that we refer to as bubbly which is the most nondescript term that we could come up with for classing what is five percent volume sparkling perry and (laughs) this is given away for free if it's your birthday so if it's your birthday you get in for free uh your friends get in on guest list you get a free table and you get a bottle of Bubbly. bubbly but you're right <laughs> like it was just it, me and my business partner came up with it like 14 years ago I, I swear to god there was a point at which he had a direct contact with the vinters that made it because we were going through half a pallet a week it's like it's your birthday and it's your birthday and it's your birthday and da, 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 yeah. da, da. um okay. why yeah. why champagne why that as a drink yeah yeah so champagne is a high status good you know it has been for a long time um it, it's 
it's also like a great party beverage and because it's like it's light and bubbly it has that kind of you know nice uplift in your mouth it's like sparkly it's also um uh it lends itself well to shaking and spraying so if you want to go nuts and make a big show of how you can waste this rare high status good then you can shake it and spray it yeah without that's right and you know Imagine you can't do it with like a Lambrusco, right? Like you can't shake and spray a red because it's just going to ruin gonna wreck the night. Everyone. So we weren't allowed. <laughs> my one experience of proper New York partying was last year on my friend Stag Do. Um, we went to Lavo Brunch mm-hmm. on, the, on the Saturday and the table bill came to $34,000 before we even got to PhD. Then we went to PhD. Shout out to Troy Gordon, who I'm going to send this to, who I'm absolutely certain at some point soon is going to have a coffee table book of all of the nightlife texts that he gets, which nice. are something else. Um, anyway, so we went to PhD and we'd got, we'd stolen someone's, literally hijacked someone's Hummer, stretch Hummer limousine, um, was firing champagne through the roof of this thing. It's like, to me, it feels an awful lot like becoming a customer when you were originally the supplier. Uh, it's like getting high on your own supply of industry. But I was like, ah, I'm in America. Fuck it. Um, so <laughs> do what I want, New York. Um, and then arrived at PhD and we were like, just Larry, I don't know whether you guys use that term in America, but kind of, uh, raucous and, 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 and loud and just being loud. It's stag do, right? It's a bachelor party. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> sure enough, PhD is packed. Um, the stag starts doing handstand walks up and down the table, like that overlooks the whole. So he's upside down doing handstand walks and then starts spraying a bottle and we've got it on video. And, um, the MC comes on on the mic and says, we don't do that here, boys. This is New York city. If you do that again, my friend LeBron's going to knock you the fuck out. Points to LeBron, (laughs) who is like a six foot nine huge behemoth of a doorman and we were like lebron's gonna come over again sure enough (laughs) so yeah it was um that was my that was my one experience but it's clubbing in in america especially that side that like brunch stk sort of party vibe is um something that i'm seeing increasingly moving over to places like ibiza so i was in Mm -hmm. ibiza last weekend socially socially distanced um and in defense of the party industry generally, that product to me feels more wholesome than the previous incarnation, which was the Ravia um, open from 10 or 11 o'clock until 6, 7 in the morning with a long lineup of DJs sort of events, mm-hmm. which were dominating the European clubbing scene. And I feel like health and wellness goes UK, US, but clubbing goes Europe, US. It goes like they, we kind of swap. Um, mm-hmm. You're always ahead of us in terms of wellness, but we're always ahead of you in terms of partying. That's uh, right. Yeah. Am- Americans make terrible music. Like, sorry to everyone that's listening. Like, you make good rap, you get, make good rap and hip hop, but like everything else is just awful. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the way it is. I think that increasingly we're seeing these sorts of parties that are, um, actually very heavily focused on food on um the quirkiness of the experience the bottle shows the guy in the light up doll outfit that comes out and dances next to your table for no reason the quote boards that you can hold up that say something (laughs) funny that you can put on your instagram and 
everyone from Candy Pants Events who will be listening to this as well, including Nick that runs out in Dubai and they've got some stuff in Vegas and all the rest of it. Yes. They are the um, the gatekeepers of sort of what's happening at the moment, mm -hmm. I think, with like cool young uh, parties like this. And they have something really, really similar to what you were talking about, but I think is... I'm going to try and put drop Nick in it too much. It's more wholesome. Um, they have a deal with all of the Emirates girls and all of the, I think it's like the Air Qatar girls. So all of the yeah. air hostesses that work for uh -huh. them, they all drink for free, eat for free, entry for free. Um, uh -huh. And that's a slightly less sort of surreptitious way of doing Because it's like category wide, right? It's like if you're, it's not that you need to know the promoter and have had sex with him and like be yeah, six foot sure, old. sure. Although there is certainly a rigorous screening of um, the Emeritus host, <laughs> like to flight attendants who that, are. Well, that's it because they've pre-selected, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Often from economically disadvantaged countries, like in the Balkans, for instance. And so there's certainly still some inequities. You know, unfortunately, it is it is a capitalist system, even with. I mean, I agree that these are very beautiful and wonderful experiences and. Um, and a really important part of the economy, you know, and it's called the experience economy, everything from like the, you know, festivals to these kinds of Instagram worthy kind of pop up things. But um, but so often what I find what makes these spaces valuable is the implied um, exclusivity of them, which means that not everybody can get in. Right? It, it means that inherently there's going it's predicated on a hierarchy in which. Not everybody looks good enough to be in your picture and can't come in. <laughs> it's interesting that for the most part, nightlife, and I'll break the fourth wall for everyone that doesn't know it, nightlife is entirely constructed in the heads of the people who attend and the people who don't. Like, if you look at Lavo Brunch Club or PhD or STK or whatever, in the cold light of day when there's no music on and the cleaning lights are up, and <laughs> it it stinks it's right. it's an awful lot smaller than you think it is it's about mm -hmm. one third the size of the venue that you think it is when you you're 10 drinks deep and and dancing away um and the exclusivity all of this stuff it's entirely socially constructed it must be fascinating mm -hmm. for you to look at for you to research yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's a really good observation about like in the daytime, you know, compared to the nighttime. And actually, like listening to your story about the $30,000 bill and, you know, this kind of wild night in which you ultimately get kicked out yeah, or the threat of getting kicked out, it becomes kind of immortalized as a story that you can tell of like, I did this and I know that it was reckless. I know that it was silly, but in the moment, it really made sense and it probably felt really good. And I found this um, throughout the research process, I would observe people in, you know, spending this kind of money, burning money, shooting champagne bottles. And then in interviews, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not really like that. That's very vulgar behavior. I don't spend as much as these other guys spend. And so like what people say versus what people do or how people think and how they construct themselves. That's a real problem in social science. Because the experienced self versus yeah. the remembered self is just that's right. So my my master's dissertation was on the effectiveness of anti anti alcohol advertising on students at Newcastle University, and uh -huh. in essence, the the result of the dissertation was nothing works. Like that, drinking to young people, especially in the UK, is seen as a badge of honor. Not only is it a badge of honor, it's a rite of passage. There's very few things that you can do where the 
seriousness of the destruction is directly correlated to the worthiness of the story. Like yeah. you don't say, hey man, how was your football game? And you say, oh, it was amazing. I broke my leg. You're like, but if I say to you, hey, Ashley, how was, how was your night on Saturday? Oh my God, it was so good. I got taken home in an ambulance. Like I woke up, I had no idea where I was. Like I was missing, I was missing my shoes. Like I don't even know where my shoes were. Like my eyeball was on the, the bedside table next to me. You know what I mean? Like that, this is like the language. Too much, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's the language that people use, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've seen that before in, in some stuff on like research on alcohol and young people. The the the, the badge of honor point um, is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a real problem also on college campuses because, you know, um, here at our university as well, that's a, a kind of, it's a, it's part of what it, what is the experience of higher education. I mean, the university is also part of this experience economy. Like why else would somebody shell out, you know, 50K or 70K for a university if not to have those kinds of magical moments of like coming of age in this environment of, you know, of the university in the dorm in the city. Um, and and yeah, that, that poses a real problem for, um, for health and well-being because alcohol is such a close, you know, it's like this lubricant that that is kind of foundational to like the this college experience. It's an all-cause mortality risk, but when under the age of twenty-five, you're made of rubber and magic, so like you can survive. <laughs> you can survive pretty much so, anything. I'm super curious. Can you tell me a little bit about what social distant, socially distant Ibiza parties look like? Yeah, uh, that was interesting. So that was last weekend. I went out with my buddy, um, Owen. I, I did the season in Ibiza. I fell in love with a girl uh, when I was like 22. Classic holiday romance. Classic. Fueled, fueled by far too much alcohol and some, and some potent drugs. And um, uh, I worked for, I dropped my life and moved out there in between my bachelor's and my master's. And um, the boss that I worked for then is now Carl Cox's manager. And I've kept in touch with him for years and years and years. Amazing guy called Owen, Irish guy. Um, and... I was I went out and I met him and he told me everything about the island last week. So social distance party at the moment. None of the clubs are open. Nighttime clubs. The only venues that are open are, um, are open air. So places like Ocean Beach. Ushuaia decided they weren't going to open at all this year, um, which was an interesting decision. But I think their overheads are high. Their operating costs will be high because they're used to having these big DJs. It is not cheap to open a venue where you've got open water like deep enough for you to fall into and all this sort of stuff there's going to be security costs there's going to be blah 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 um but ocean beach we were there you are sat on a table you're not allowed to go to other tables or mingle with other tables although they were fairly lax in the vip which was the section that we were in um but mostly you're not supposed to intermix um if we take that one step further to what i think is going to happen in the uk a venue that's uh, my, my friend knows the owner in Leeds, where we operate. Um, they were shut down last week for having, and I quote, too many people standing up. <laughs> there was too many people standing up in that venue. Um, wow. So you can imagine, like, I'm, I'm on this yeah. table. I'm on this table. You're sat over there. And I'm, I'm chatting to my friends, and I think, oh, she's, she's quite pretty. But <laughs> I, I'm, not allowed, I'm not allowed to talk to you. What I have to do is say, hey, hey, um, do you fancy go to the smoking area? Because I can't go over my line. There's a piece of paper on the floor that says, like, 
don't go past this line. And if I do, the door staff will come over and say, like, stop talking. So now wow. there's this whole new rhythm of how people are speaking to other groups by having to go outside, which is, I guess, testament to how adaptive humans are. Yeah. That you give them yeah. a rule and immediately there is, right, okay, where's the hole in the, oh, okay, I can't speak. The workaround. The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised I wouldn't solve that with like Tinder. You know, you can just like see who's well, in set, the room. Set the, like, radi- <laughs> set the radius to three centimeters and see. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or some other sort of mediated uh, communication. Um, well, the, yeah. all of these things, the whole, the entire last sort of six months has caused a lot of changes. But mm-hmm. every one of those changes has offered an opportunity for someone to step in because the supply of everything no longer meets the demand because the demands are completely changed. Yeah. Zoom, the, the stock price of Zoom. Also, did you know that there is a Chinese company also called Zoom whose share price has gone up by <laughs> like nearly 50% from people make it wrongly buying the wrong company? That's right. In part because sports are closed, you have so many people that are now doing, you know, this little investors like as as gambling as a substitute for sports gambling. And so they're just like, yeah, Zoom. Find the wrong that. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lucky man, there's there's some poetic irony in that. I don't know, um, but yeah, that's that's like that's a a big part of it. But it was it was weird um, scanning your your menu on the table because they weren't bringing over actual actual menus and all this sort of stuff um i don't think i don't think we're going to see partying be the same certainly not in places like spain um this year um it may be next year we Mm -hmm. are in i don't know what it's like in america i guess it's federal right so it's state by state but um in the uk we are the only industry the nightlife industry that hasn't got a reopen date um which is What do you think that says? What do you think it says that the government hasn't bothered to give n- nightclubs uh, a, a date to reopen when we every industry has, from live music venues to sports and recreation to big stadiums? What, mm-hmm. what, what, how do you think it's have, viewed then? Have bars opened? So bars have opened, table service only, um, and <laughs> how they categorize bar versus nightclub is kind of... Right. It's, a- it's a little bit loose, but no one can do anything that would um, be analogous to the sort of experience that you would expect in a club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's the stand-up problem that you were describing, like in a nightclub. Like in a a bar, you can imagine there's some way that a managerial or security staff could necessitate that people not get shoulder to shoulder, right, and like embrace and like stand up and feel the music. That is the purpose of a nightclub, is to be close to strangers. It's sadly an industry that was designed to transmit a virus like it's hot it's sweaty people shout people kiss people mingle and use the same glasses like you know even if they've gone through the dishwasher like is it yeah i don't know yeah it's um it's a real chance so what's next are you what what are you going to delve into for your next research project have you got any idea yeah i have a couple of things going on nothing nothing has um worked out yeah, in terms of ethnography, probably that's because I've got these two little kids now. And so trying to imagine doing ethnographic fieldwork in the style that I've you know, been trained to do. Nobody told me this when I was like, you know, 22 and like <laughs> learning my field. But Better get all of your research done before. Right. 
<laughs> before you right. have kids. Yeah, unless I do something on like the PTA, like the Parent Teacher Association <laughs> at the school yeah. or something. Which, yeah, there's some interesting questions there too. I mean, I had a professor in grad school, Craig Calhoun. He used to say that all of all of social life is like high school. And so there's like, you can study hierarchy and inequality and boundaries and transgressions and categories of worth in any kind of field. So the PTA is just as politicized in that sense as a nightclub. <laughs> so, you know, I could go for it. But um, I don't know, if in, the, in the immediate short term, when working with a team of graduate students to interview uh, people that work at bars that have been out of work. So um, we're looking at bartenders and uh, bottle girls and how they transition skills. Um, and yeah, I'd like how, yeah, how they think about the future right now when, they're, when their industry is in such shock. Kaput. Uh, yeah. Well, there will be a lot of people from the nightlife industry, promoters, DJs, especially, uh, yeah. uh, bar staff, yeah. table servers, managers and assistant managers, AGMs, GMs, ops managers, anyone that's listening, like, let me know, you know what to find me at Chris Will X, wherever you follow me or put it in the YouTube comments or do whatever. Um, what's your thoughts? Like, especially the, t we're a heavy UK audience, but like 35% of people listening will be from America as well. So we'll get a good insight from there. But like, the UK really, really hasn't helped the nightlife industry that much. And I can see this, I can see both sides. I can, I'm, yeah. my, the house that I'm in is built because of the people that go to nightlife. But I also appreciate that there's a big public health concern. And, and I don't know, it's, it's an interesting one, but I, I'd love to know what people think. I'd love to get a little bit of feedback. So throw that in the comments below. Actually, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I better get let you go. You've got you've got two. We can't just we can't just do this all night. This isn't <laughs> this isn't like two thousand and ten. That's right. <laughs> but this has been really fun. I feel like you're the um, the kind of perfect audience for for my work. <laughs> like, Very from much both so. Fashion and nightlife. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, exactly. I um I'm going to leave it with a parting note. I told Ashley before we started, but I had my so first socially distanced modeling casting today, which was hilarious because I turned um we were told to turn up um must wear facial covering, must do everything, and I got in there to find that the guy that was running the casting, who must must own the company, wasn't wearing a face mask and was just like getting in, like putting the shirt, making sure that the the shirt fitted. Like the, there was something up with the shoulder on one of mine, so he put a shoulder pad in to like change the shape of it. I'm like, no one, no one, no one gives a fuck anymore, do they? No one cares. Um, but yeah, um, you're not on, you're not on any social media or anything, are you? No, not really. I know for someone who studies and teaches in pop culture, this, is, <laughs> this seems a little incongruent, but um, it was a deliberate thing to try to protect my attention. <laughs> so. I like it. What, um, where do you want people to go? The link to your new book will be in the show notes below. Anything else you want okay. to check out? Well, actually, I am on LinkedIn. So, um, yeah, I guess I feel like that's the, I don't know. The adult legitimate version of LinkedIn as Mike Winnett, past modern wisdom guest says, is Facebook for wankers. As Yeah. Okay, nice. <laughs> well. I'm on it as well. Everyone listening is on it. It's just that you act you act differently, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting different kind of norms. Well, I might need to get you I th I feel like we've got tons of stuff that we could go through. I might need to I might need to get you back on and we can have uh, we can have another discussion and, and deconstruct some other bizarre world. Yeah. Yeah, I want to hear more about like the fashion modeling industry now and what's happening uh, and the future of fashion modeling. That sounds awesome. It's, 
I'm in. Yeah. Socially distanced, <laughs> social, socially distanced castings, I'm telling you, they're the way forward. Turn up with a mask on, you could be anybody. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, but I think the, the standard for your personality has got to go way up, right? Like, you got to really make it shine behind that mask. I know, exactly. Yeah, you got to go it's in. All in you got to be all now. gracious. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Like, really, like, expressive hands or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, well, Did you see those um, images a while ago where people were editing celebrities to remove their eyebrows? No. Oh, it's terrifying. Just search celebrities with no eyebrows on Google. Oh, wow. It's so scary. I'm going to leave you with, actually, because I haven't told you this, and Rob Henderson, the guy that told me to get in touch with you, was on this show and dropped some amazing knowledge bombs. Um, Tinder dating stats for you. Mm -hmm. Um, One in five swipes from a woman is right. So it's like one in five is, whereas the for men, it's like one in 10 left. Yeah. And the stats, the data comes back as the bottom 20%, uh, sorry, the bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 20% of women and the top 80% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. Mm. That's how hypergamous the the Tinder dating pool is. And they... um, they were talking, Rob was looking at some amazing dating statistics. I'll try and link you guys in, looking at some great dating statistics from university campuses. And he mm-hmm. found that there was a increasing challenge for highly educated uh, women to find mates that yeah. they really wanted to be with. And the implication is pretty terrifying as girls become richer and better educated, but always want a partner that is at least as educated That's and or right. as rich. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. The challenge that you have is there's only two things that can happen. One of them is that you stay single and the other is that you start to date a person that you are fundamentally unattracted to. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is attraction though? I mean, in this case, it's, it's rooted in a socially constructed norm that men are more powerful and have more resources than women. And so I'm totally fine with that changing. And I then think the pool I, opens up. I think, I think that's great, but can women, can women find a man attractive when their typical signals of success and signals of attraction, you know, it's the, is the dad bod sexy again argument. Yeah. Resource acquisition is part and parcel supposedly as is muscle acquisition as is straight teeth and good speech and tall height. Yeah. Blah, blah. We could go on. Yeah. I, actually, I've got to let you go. You got to get back to your. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on forever if I'm not careful. Um, your link, <laughs> link, link to your fantastic book will be in the show notes below. If you've listened to this and it's resonated with you, let me know what you think. There's tons of people that will have loads and loads of stories, and I'll, I'll pass them back on to Ashley, and, and maybe you'll feature in the next book or something. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> this was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs>